I hit my step count for the first time in quarantine today because I was walking all up and down Northwest Washington, D.C., looking for a brisket five days before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, by the time this comes out, we'll be well past Rosh Hashanah. We'll be like into Yom Kippur kind of yeah, area. But oh my God, I'm so tired. I'm not used to doing that much walking, but all over, the, I found one. I found one. Where'd you find it? Trader Joe's. Of course. Trader Joe's, man. I looked at the farmer's market, but they were sold down, and that was really sad because obviously- People probably pre-ordered to the farmer's market. That's the thing. I only thought about it like Thursday, and the pre-orders needed to be in by Wednesday. Ah. So walking all around Northwest Washington- Check the farmer's market stand to be like, oh, maybe they brought extra. And I went early. Like, I get there at 1030 now. And they were sold out. It's kind of like Thanksgiving for, like, where you have to pre-order your turkey or ham. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of terrified for that moment. So I'm hosting Thanksgiving. But I need, like, an 8 to 10-pound turkey. Nothing like, I seen 30-pound turkeys when I was, Mm -hmm. like, researching this. Like, how big is a brisket? Um, It depends. The brisket that I got was 3 pounds, 3.1 pounds. And that's but for you, you can, or for, like, others? It's for me and for my extended quarantine household. Shout out to Maureen and Paul. I don't know if they're listening to this episode, but they said they were going to listen to the first two, so... But you can make a lot of brisket if you want to. In a, in a, oh, in yeah, a yeah, yeah, I'm going to make turkey. all of it. It, it. it reheats really well. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. I'm in the virtual studio with my spice wife, Lexi. Lexi, do you want to explain how we got spice married? (laughs) Well, for one, we're both really spicy people, um, so that's got to be the first reason. (laughs) When you put two spicy people together, it equals a spicy marriage. But no, what happened was I was moving out of D.C. and I had a collection of spices because I love spices and I needed someone to take my spices so Alana took them and then the other day Alana was cooking and talking about all the spices she uses and it happened to be a combination of the spices from both spice cabinets so it was a spice marriage. We, we shared our spice assets <laughs> and hopefully someday we will live together and our spices can stay together forever. Someday. Or they'll expire. But spices last a long time. Spices last a while. Also here, here in air quotes, is Haley. Haley, do you have a favorite dish to cook? Ooh, I love making anything with mashed potatoes. I really, like, find it just calming to peel potatoes and then chop them up and then watch them boil. I like those, like, specific steps that I can go through. I'm inviting you to help me make latkes because that's the worst part. This has been a very Alana is Jewish episode already, but I'm inviting you to make latkes with me so that you can peel all the potatoes because I hate doing that. I've never had a latke before, so I don't know how much help I'll be. Don't you live in New York? Latkes have eggs. I've never had a latke sans eggs, so no one's I'll find a way. For you, I will find a way to make latkes sans eggs. And I'm Alana, and my friends call me a Trader Ho because I grocery shop almost exclusively at Trader Joe's.
Which friends are that? Which my internet friends. friends. My oh, okay. Friends. I was like, we don't call you that. You have other friends? You, just, you have friends have that friends. aren't us? Okay, so the theme today is cooking. And because of this theme, I would like to dedicate this episode to my great-grandmother, Eleanor DeLucia, who um, we called Nana, most of us called Nana, but the reason I would like to dedicate it to her is because she spent a hundred years of life cooking and living through history, and so I think it's very fitting that this episode would be dedicated to her. And because of that, I want to ask you guys if there's any family recipes that are weird or unique to your family. Yes, I do have a very special recipe. Actually, I have a couple from my grandma Louise. Um, I recently started, oh my God, Alana's going to be Jewish on Maine again. I started making challah every week from scratch and I'm using my grandmother's recipe that is so incredibly complicated and like you, you have to boil water, but you can't boil water too much. Like it has to be exactly 110 degrees when you use it. And then you have to rise the bread or you have to like rise the dough at exactly 90 degrees. And it's so complicated. And so I've started using that recipe and I'm crushing it. I'm crushing it. It was my first time making challah by myself. And I used this recipe that was super complicated and I nailed it. I nailed it. Um, and then the other one is I started making a potato zucchini soup and uh, like when I was a teenager and I made it for my grandparents at their house once and my grandmother um, was like, you know what would give this a really beautiful green color is if you left, like you peel the zucchini, but if you leave the peel in the bowl or not in the bowl, in the pot while all of the vegetables are cooking together, the soup will be more green and it'll be like the color will be more pronounced and oh my god she was so right and so now that's like how I make it so those are my fun family stories that's so beautiful I don't think we have like a distinct recipe or sets of recipes we will cook Cuban or Persian food and I've noticed with my mom and myself since we're both like lazy lazy beans we'll take the complicated recipe, like Alana was saying, with all the ingredients, all the different measurements, what you have it, and just make it into a crock pot friendly or like one pot friendly recipe versus making it a three hour long process. Because so many times I'm like, I really want Persian food. And it wasn't until a few months ago where Persian restaurant opened down the street from me. And every time I opened like one of my marked Pinterest tabs, it would be like eight to 10 different ingredients that I could not get at my local supermarket. And then 30 plus steps culminating into three to four hours of cooking, which I just do not have, especially writing a thesis at the moment. I think for my family, it's a dessert heavy situation, like on both sides. My mom's family has these German rollout cookies that we make for Christmas, sometimes other holidays. Um, we made little George Washingtons for my graduation party, which was cute, but they're just flat cookies. And then on my Italian family side, the thing that we do at weddings is we have a table where all the aunties bring cookies. And then it's like a place of privilege or pride to be the best auntie with the best cookies for the wedding, uh, which is really cute. So I think cookies are a big deal in my family. Cookies are, are a big deal in my family too. And I find it 
like my grandmother died of three years ago just over three years ago and I find like making cookies so spiritual that I'm like this is something that we used to do together it's one of my favorite pictures of like little baby Alana and grandma Louise and she's teaching me how to use a cookie cutter and it's so cute okay I have to amend mine because when you brought up desserts like I just said probably five minutes ago I'm real allergic to eggs so my Christmas like cookies all egg free or like before we could do the temp um the substitutes or Oreos like dipped in chocolate but my birthday cake was a homemade rice krispie treat like cake my mom would just make like a ginormous one and like decorate it so all my just because like what were you going to do with a child that couldn't eat her own birthday cake? That's just sad and depressing. So my mom basically was like, we're going to have a Rice Krispie treat or we're going to have ice cream cake. So that, I guess that is heavily unique for my family. So cookbooks emerged as a status symbol, and in the 15th and 16th century Europe, cookbooks were filled with recipes from palaces and courts, and they were favored by kings and queens. And the wealthy loyal followers acquired these cookbooks as a sign of their devotion, eating like royalty. It brought them closer to being royalty. Gradually, as access to print books became more common and literacy rates rose, cookbooks became a staple in households all around Europe. But one cookbook in particular changed the way a nation ate, and that's the cookbook we're going to talk about today. In the year 1796, Amelia Simmons wrote the United States of America's first ever cookbook. In doing so, she forever changed cookbooks, shaping a future in which cookbooks were used by people from all walks of life. Amelia's book was called American Cookery or The Art of Dressing Viands, Fish, Poultry, and Vegetables. Can you spell that? V-I-A-N-D-S. I hate French. It was published by Hudson and Goodwin in Hartford, Connecticut. While it was not the first cookbook printed in America, it was the first one written by an American. It was a unique cookbook. It was distinguished from its British counterparts for its attention to more practical methods of cooking and it provided recipes that could make large quantities of food for families on tight budgets. And when I say large quantities, I mean the ingredients were prepared in huge, huge quantities. One of her cake recipes called for two pounds of butter. Amelia also believed in saving time, and one of her recipes called for the person making the recipe to milk a cow directly into the mixture. Amelia's cookbook resonated so successfully with America's home cooks that it was reprinted for 35 years after its initial publication. Amelia's recipes may not be as commonplace in American households as they were during her lifetime, but they are a great resource for analyzing and understanding how food and language were related in history. Some of Amelia's terms became commonplace in American language, such as calling pancakes slapjacks, referring to lard and butter as shortening, coining the Americanization of the Dutch word cookie, I might have said that wrong, which would eventually become the word cookie. She actually spelled it like C-O-O-K-Y, not I-E like we spell it today. Her legacy continues in her home state of Connecticut, where her recipe for election cake, a floury bread cake baked in large quantities, became a common after-voting snack for Connecticut's residents and remains relevant today. Plus, Amelia's recipes let historical chefs recreate and taste recipes, experiencing the history of America through the flavor of foods people of the past preferred. 
And so I guess in summary, Amelia kind of started the whole trend of American cookbook culture. She established the means by which American women make their food um, and American people in general, I guess, not just women. But at the time, she definitely was writing as a woman for other women um, because her recipes were so practical and focused on how a mother might cook for their kids or a wife might cook for their husband or how you might cook for a family. So definitely she was a woman writing for women. But I really think it's an interesting and fascinating story that she created the first cookbook and it was a woman who did it. And that's really, really cool. I like how you said like cookbooks were status symbols. And I'm thinking about cleaning out my grandmother's kitchen and there were just like cabinets full of cookbooks. And I'm like, oh, hello. Yes, I am the aristocracy. I actually have a question about the cookbooks, Lex, because I couldn't find this in my research. But could you find like what constitutes as a long time for being an in-print cookbook? So nothing I read said like 35, because 35 years was how long hers was printed for. Nothing said that that was the longest or that that was normal. It was notable, but it wasn't a record. So, you know, I don't know exactly how long recipes last, but when you think about how trends change so much and how we don't really eat things today that my grandma used to cook at dinner parties in the 70s, I'm sure cookbooks don't last that long. And we think about Amelia's methods and then we think about what people ate even in the mid 1800s, it was totally different already. So even 50, 60 years later. So that's the exact train of thought I was using because I've noticed when I was just researching different women to see who I wanted to dive into, a lot of the cookbooks, if they weren't out for those like 30 year chunks, it was revisions every few years, here's a revised copy. And that's like a thing in our academic world as well, where new trends happen, new events happen, and recipes and also just work needs to be updated. So I like that, like the 30 years, but also that she's just still relevant. Yeah, so we don't know that much about her. Like, all we know is that she was an orphan. And that's literally it. We don't know anything about her personal life. We just know that she wrote this book. There's no other records of her in any way. Dude, that's cool. Yeah, and there's actually a YouTuber I'd like to shout out named, I believe it's Townsend's. I think that's how you say it. It's like the word town and the word end, who does these recipes that Amelia put in the book. And he does other historical recipes too and other historical videos. But if you want to see an entire playlist of Amelia's Thanksgiving dinner recipes check out that channel. Well, that's a great segue into my gal because we're going to keep going on the cookbook train and also kind of, I want to say revolutionizing the American kitchen in a sense, but we're going to do it with Chinese food now, not necessarily like the American food, which I got from Amelia sensing it was more of a not necessarily British take, but American classic. Establishing American classic. There we go. Yep. That's awesome. So I'm going to preface this. I'm calling. Thing her- I forgot to say on that, she used like corn and stuff, which was not available in Britain. So. Oh, I love that. That's so good for what um, I'm going to be talking about. So she is Dr. Wu Wei Yang Chow. And I'm going to 
do a little side note. I'm not going to be pronouncing these Chinese words, phrases, what you have it correctly because I do not speak Chinese. And yes, you heard it, doctor. But don't worry, we'll get into that. Born in 1889 in Nanjing, China, Bu Wei was a Chinese-American physician and writer, but most recognizable as a person who brought us, as Americans, potstickers, stir-fry, and essentially the first cookbook of Chinese-American food. Before we begin, I just want to go over what potstickers are because I didn't know what potstickers were, and I'll get into that more, but potstickers are a type of Chinese dumpling, usually the crescent-shaped pan-fried on one side, simmer in some sort of broth, and full disclosure, part of the reason why I didn't know what potstickers were, because I've only had them from Trader Joe's, i.e. that whole egg thing coming back in. So back to Dr. Bu Wei. As a female doctor in China, she did have Japanese training as a surgeon and gynecologist, and she actually pioneered the use of birth control for women in China, which blew my mind. I was reading like a New York Times article and got into a whole wormhole of this doctor's just life and bam, coming out with pioneering in birth control and medicine of that nature. And she definitely had a mix of Chinese medicine and then also like Western school medicine because a lot of the Western schools were in Asia. So she got the mix of both. And she was credited with that sense of bringing Western medicine to China as one of like the first females to do it. And a lot of the time, her medical like knowledge was noted as quote, new style. And also as a side note, I believe that in her entry exam essay, it was about women's education, which I thought was really, really cool. Like how educating women was a good and powerful thing. And I only found that on like one article, so it might not be true, but I'm praying that it is true because that is just so baller to go into med school with your entry essay being about women's education and like the right that women have to be educated at such a professional level. So why did I bring this all up? Because come on, Haley, we're here to talk about food. Well, while she was in Japan and studying at Tokyo Women's Medical College, she started cooking her own meals because she didn't enjoy the Japanese cuisine. It just didn't sit right with her. Totally different. She wanted the comfort of home. And since Japan didn't have- Raw fish, I'm with her. I'm with her. I don't do the raw fish. Exactly. Like if we went to Italy and for me, the eggs and all those pastas, I would be going out buying my own pasta, making my own carbonara, sans eggs. Totally natural. But Japan, kind of like what Lexi is getting to- Japan didn't have all the traditional ingredients, so she would modify her traditional Chinese recipes to fit in with what she could get from the Japanese markets. And when she returned to China in 1919, she opened the Senren Hospital, and after a few more years, marriage, blossoming career, she was offered to teach at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thus, we get into her time in the U.S., And her and her husband, like their couple of years where they go back and forth, um, teaching, practicing medicine, living their life. So when she was writing or just before she was writing her first cookbook, which is How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. And that came out in 1945. She would try and test out her food 
this was also often in the U.S., so with the ingredients that her readers would have. And she added these elements to her everyday cooking. So this wasn't like, I'm going to write this cookbook for people to buy it and make money off of it, but not use it myself. She fully invested saying, look, if I'm going to produce something for people to read, I have to use it in my everyday cooking. I have to live by this, which I really respect. So in a history perspective, 1945 is the tail end of World War II. And for writing cookbooks, writing cookbooks takes years to do. Um, If you saw the movie Julia and Julia, you kind of get a glimpse of that, where you first write about the outline, what you want to cook. You want to have appetizers, mains, and desserts. And then you get it to the publisher. They say, cool, do these work. You test and test and test just years and years. And honestly, I could be totally getting this timeline wrong. This is just my preliminary knowledge. So 1940s, we're in World War II. It was also a difficult time for cooking and food in general in the United States because not just having the native Chinese cultural food that she was used to, and now she had to supplement in the U.S., they're also going through food shortages and kind of restrictions from food stamps and just what was available during World War II. So she really used some innovative and creative thinking when writing this masterpiece of hers. And a lot of it also came from just the New York World's Fair happened in 1939. And I don't think this had a direct impact on her writing the cookbook, but I think it had an impact on her selling a cookbook and becoming like this wide sensation because that World's Fair was about showcasing food from around the world and pushing having new cuisine in U.S. culture. And then a few years later, we have this cookbook about Chinese food. And on an overall note, Bui's cookbook was not the first Chinese cookbook in the U.S. um, in terms of being published in English, but it was more the first that was universally understood in the sense of getting the food, understanding the writing and measurements, is very comprehensive and accessible to wide audience. This OG cookbook in 1945, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, also had expanded editions in 1949, 1956, and 1968. So what I was asking Lexi before, she kind of kept up with the words, terms, recipes, and just, I tried to find some of the cookbooks, but all of them are out of print at this point. Regardless, it brought new terms and techniques to U.S. kitchens and over 200 different recipes, which included terms, ingredients, techniques, tools, but also like etiquette. So how to use chopsticks? What are the polite ways you should be eating dumplings versus fried rice? Which I thought was really cool. And I tried to look through like the two cookbooks I had in my apartment and I couldn't find anything where it was like, here's the etiquette you should use. Granted, they were more US-based cookbooks. It wasn't one targeted for a certain cuisine. And she also acknowledged the help from her husband and daughter, uh, Rulon. She would cook and her daughter would write down in English, usually translating from Chinese to English. So if I may dazzle you with a quote from, I believe this is from the New York Times. 
and also just culmination of other an audio source that I found. It was like uh, an interview, and I saw there's just so many, so many things of her using like this quote and a mashup of this quote. I am ashamed to have written this book. First, because I'm a doctor and ought to be practicing instead of cooking. Secondly, because I didn't write this book. The way I didn't was like this. I speak little English and write less. So I cooked my dishes in Chinese. My daughter, Rulon, put my Chinese into English. And this quote has so many variations, but it's basically saying that she can't take full credit because she was still a doctor. She couldn't necessarily write in English the way that U.S. publications wanted her to. And she needed a lot of help, which is so fair for any cookbook, any writing source. And I just thought that was amazing. Like, I kept finding clips. And even when people were kind of telling her story years later, were saying, like, she was ashamed to, like, have written this cookbook and taken it away from her medical studies, but also values how great of an impact this cookbook had on the U.S. Now you know how I said that she coined the terms stir fry and popstickers. Well, it's because chao and guti, again, I don't speak Chinese, please don't come after me, really didn't have English translations. Like the term Chinese food is really just like a U.S. word. It's not something that's used in China. You can't, you won't go to China and just be like, I want the Chinese food or I'm going to a Chinese food restaurant. It's because the way Chinese food is broken up in China is regionally. So they, gr- they don't group it up as one whole country as we do and how somewhat of this cookbook does. It's very specific to where you are in China. And it's not a representation of the country as a whole like unit. But for this cookbook and us as Americans, we just say Chinese food. And that's, again, coming back to what is available in each region. So for the U.S. and for this cookbook, this is what's available in the U.S., not what's available in northern versus southern China. And there are a ton of other words that were in this book that didn't even stick in our English vernacular. So, like, that's why it's really interesting trying to find a copy, but alas, I couldn't find one online. Because I feel like if we reread this, we wouldn't understand it as chefs, not just like with the vernacular, but just the way it was written and the way some of the food kind of was presented. She also, just to wrap everything up, she wrote two more books afterwards of how to order and eat Chinese. And then another autobiography called An Autobiography of Chinese Women, put into English by her husband, Yuren Chow. So she still just a fantastic, amazing woman. Like this blew my mind, especially being in San Francisco. That's my story of Dr. Bu Wei. So I am going to be talking about Mary Mallon. Um, and there has been a lot of talk about her recently, and we'll we'll get to why she's been in the news. So she was born on September 23rd, which is my mom's birthday, and also yesterday, on the day this comes out, um, in 1869, in a poor area of Ireland called Cookstown in County Tyrone. And I'm, like, b- a little bit familiar with Irish geography. Like, I know the names of some counties in 
the Republic of Ireland. Like we've talked about County Mayo, we talked about County Cork, County Kildare. If you know it, then you know it. And I was like, I've never heard of County Tyrone. And I know there are like 28 counties in the Republic of Ireland, but so I, I was curious. I was like, where is this? It's actually in Northern Ireland. So it's technically in the UK. So Mary Mallon immigrated to New York City as a teenager in 1883 or 1884, about then, um, and she starts working as a cook uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and she is famous for her peach ice cream. In 1906, she was hired as a chef for the family of Charles Warren, who was a banker in 1906, so they have cash cash, and they go on vacation in Oyster Bay, and Mary comes with them to be their chef. Several members of the Warren family contract typhoid over those couple of weeks. And typhoid is considered at the time a poor people's disease because uh, you contract it uh, mostly from contaminated water. Imagine thinking that like only rich people deserve clean water. Like call me a socialist, but I really think that everyone should have access to clean water. Um, and Warren's landlord is concerned about being able to rent the property the next summer because there was this outbreak. And so he has hired a sanitation engineer named George Soper. And he's been an expert in tracing the outbreaks and he tests all the pipes and he tests everything. There's nothing. So he focuses on Mary. Turns out, Several other families that Mary had worked for had also had typhoid outbreaks. And this is where, listeners, if you haven't guessed, Mary Mallon becomes, Lexi, put in a drum roll here, please. Typhoid Mary. I could see Haley like laughing in her Zoom, but they're on mute, so that's fun. So George Sofer goes after her asks for samples of everything, and she chases him out of her kitchen with a fork. Like a, like a barbecue two-pronged fork, not like a, like a dinner fork. Oh, I have fork. a tiny fork, are you scared of me? Like a fork. So he returns with cops to have her arrested, and Mary hides under a floorboard, but some of her dress is caught. And so they find her and they arrest her and they force her into quarantine for three years on North Brother Island, which is a quarantine facility, a little dot of an island uh, in the East River near the Bronx. She is tested up and down for typhoid and they all come back positive for Salmonella typhi, which is the bacteria that causes typhoid. But she has no symptoms. She's the picture of health. She is released in 1910 on the condition to never cook again. In 1915, there is a typhoid outbreak at Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan. And the health department is called, and the hospital is just like how, like we're a hospital, everything is so sanitary, how did this happen? And the health department says, Who, who's doing your cooking? And the, nurse, the nurses are just like, oh, this lovely Irish immigrant, her name is Mary Brown. She had changed her name to keep working as a cook. And that sounds kind of like irresponsible, but what else could she do? She had no other skills. She's not married. She originally immigrated with her aunt and uncle, but they've died. And she's an Irish immigrant during a time of very high anti-Irish sentiments. She really didn't have another choice. But they catch her and they forced her back into quarantine for the rest of her life. 
they say that she could have had a gallbladder removal surgery and they would have let her go, but she didn't want it. And I was like, why wouldn't you want it? But also the doctors imprisoned her essentially. And she even referred to herself in a letter to her lawyer as the kidnapped woman. So I do kind of understand why she'd say no. And then she died in 1938 of a stroke and only nine people attended her funeral, which this is another like, oh, Lana's Jewish kind of thing. But I'm like, that's not even a minyan. How are you going to do anything? Lexi's rolling her eyes at me. But in pop culture, she is demonized. Um, she's the butt of jokes and cartoons. But there are other asymptomatic carriers at this point all over the country and even in New York. So I think she is demonized particularly because she's a woman, particularly because she's unmarried, and particularly because she's an Irish immigrant at a time of anti-Irishism. I don't know if that's a word, but she's been in the news recently. A lot of my sources are from, like, June. <laughs> People talking about typhoid Mary because talking about asymptomatic carriers and being super spreaders. I think that's so fascinating how people are tying her story into our current situation. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're talking about our suffragists, women's right to vote. And remember, everyone, register to vote. Please and thank you. I really don't understand eggs on a fundamental level. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends? Maybe a mystery? Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears. You can listen to these adventures in any order. Join us on an actual play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens Podcast. Fantasy, action, mystery, and friendship.